0: What does the North Pole and the South Pole have in common with Democrats and Republicans? Polarization. You mention the name of the president or you mention the name of the four congresswomen in a crowd, and all of a sudden there's a great divide. Can't we all just get along? I hardly need to tell you that it can get pretty messy, people with strong allegiances, alliances, convictions, When it comes to family, friends. But you know, then there's Jesus. Many today believe that God is love, God brings peace, that God sent Jesus into the world as a man to bring love and peace. I mean, didn't Jesus say to several when he sent them off, he said, Go in peace, go in peace. And didn't he say to his disciples, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And that today is the popular perception concerning Jesus. that He was this tranquil, uh, unflappable religious guru who, who went around spreading love and joy and peace and tranquil vibes and whose message was peace on earth and peace through love. Or was it the real Jesus cut against the grain and was for most a polarizing figure you either loved him or you hated him the more attractive he grew to some the more loathsome he grew to others while certain people thronged to him others wanted to plot his death they were clearly on one side or the other And that's how you know, by the way, whether you've encountered the real Jesus. You're either deeply moved in love or you hate him intensely. Most people, some probably even here today, probably find him rather boring, sentimental. I know because I watch some of you yawn once in a while when I'm up here. But no one in the Bible who encountered the real Jesus ever found him boring or sentimental. And that alone shows many have never encountered the real Jesus. This passage we're going to study this morning is I'm going to move this up. It's rather difficult. It's a difficult one. It's a difficult one to understand. And once you understand it, it's a difficult one to accept. But by the end of the day, my hope is that those of us who know the real Jesus will grow to love him even more. And those of us here this morning who find this difficult statement Jesus makes about division that help you to understand which side you're really on. But my hope would be that by the end of our time that you'd want to cross over that great divide and that you want to come and put your faith in Jesus Christ. So, with that in mind, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, verse 49. Luke twelve forty nine through 53. And if you don't have a Bible, you can find a white Bible on the seat near you. You can pick that up and turn to page 966. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible at home and uh, you'd like to take a Bible, you're, that one's yours to take. It's yours. Don't even ask. Just walk out the door with it. No one's going to stop you. We hope that you will read it. So, these are the words of Jesus, Luke 12, verse 49, beginning there through 53. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I've come? To give peace on earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided. Three against two, two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother. Again, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. And daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. My first of two points is this. Jesus came to bring division. Jesus came to bring division. Now these words are rather striking, aren't they? Goes against the grain of what most of us would think. But these are the words from Jesus' own lips. He didn't come to bring peace. He He came to bring division. Not what you'd expect. And besides that, it sounds a little negative to us, I think. But I believe there are some reasons why we take it this way at first blush, and I'd like us to consider and chew on them for a little bit. First, I think people respond this way to that, those words of Jesus because people don't normally like dogmatism. Dogmatism. People who have opinions that are clearly defined and formulated are strongly held, they tend not to be very popular these days. It's being vague and being rather uh, unsure that seems to attract more of an audience than one who stands with authority, than one who stands with assertiveness. For example, if you were to say to someone with conviction that you believe concerning John 14 verse 6 that Jesus is the only way to God, if you were to say that to someone, it would not be unusual for them to reply back. You're so arrogant and narrow-minded. That's the way of the world today. How does one respond to a friend like that? Well, you need to tell them to understand, help them understand that Christianity is a revealed truth, that it's not just a collection of ideas and ideals that have been written down by men, but Christianity starts with a premise that God has spoken, and God has chosen to reveal himself through creation through the scriptures, and through the Lord Jesus Christ who walked here on this earth among us. And, and, and it's our charge as believers to go and tell others that they might believe in Jesus too. And if the claims of Christianity are true, then it's not arrogant to proclaim the truth. It's truth. And we can't help but tell what we believe is true. People don't normally like dogmatism. Secondly, the statement is not what you'd expect from the mouth of Jesus because no one appreciates negativism these days. We shouldn't say negative things, should we? You teach your children not to be negative. You can speak about what you believe, but don't speak up against what others believe, right? And yet I want you to listen to what Paul proclaims about what an elder of the church ought to be able to do. Titus 1.9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he, the elder, may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also, listen, to rebuke or oppose those who contradict. Of course, with gentleness, with reverence, but to oppose those who contradict. What's this say to us? It says to us that truth is by very nature exclusive. Jesus is the only way to God. And so Jesus says, I've come to bring not peace, but division. And it forces you to either stand with Jesus or stand away from Jesus. By the way, where where are you standing today? There's a third reason why Jesus' words might take us a little bit by surprise, because We've grown accustomed to how Christianity has been presented. Now, not that any of these are wrong. Um, I've used many of them myself, but for the most part, the gospel has been presented as an appeal to man's self interests and self or felt needs. For example, maybe you've seen a track How to Have a Happy and Meaningful Life. Do you want to find success and fulfillment? Do you want to find purpose and meaning Then turn to the Jesus? You know, that's, that's the wording. Jesus and his gospel had been presented over the course of my lifetime, oftentimes as an appeal to man's self-interest, felt needs. But that wasn't so much Jesus' approach. Jesus says, that if you want to get serious about what I am and who I claim to be, I will turn your world upside down and your family inside out. Jesus came to bring division. Look at verse 49. Jesus came to cast fire upon the earth, and he wished that it were already kindled. Verse 50, he goes on to say, There is a baptism, and I'm distressed about it. And he says in verse 51, There's a division. A dividing line, a line drawn in the sand, which is the most discriminating and distinguishable factor in every life on planet Earth. Let's look at these three words together fire, baptism, and division. First, fire, verse 49 I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. What does he mean by fire? I think it's hard to be dogmatic because when you look at the scriptures, fire is used in so many different ways from Old Testament to New Testament. But maybe if we take them collectively, look at them, look at them together, we might get a clearer picture. So that's what I'm going to try to do very briefly, I'm not going to use the whole all of them, all of the uh, references. But let me offer you these four snapshots from the scripture of the use of the word fire. First, we see in Malachi 3.2. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, right before uh, the the New Testament, and Jesus appears on the scene. We see in Malachi 3.2, the threshold of the Messiah's coming, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, which speaks of purification. Again, the word fire is used... When John the Baptist arrives on the scene, in Luke chapter 3, verse 16, and he says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Baptism speaks of washing and cleansing. Then you move further into the New Testament to the book of Acts verse 3, 2, verse 3. On the day of Pentecost, we read, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them, and it rested on each one of them. And this speaks of divine power that was bestowed by God upon those who were there. You move fast forward through the New Testament and you come to the book of Revelation and you see that fire is a sign of consuming judgment, the consuming judgment of God. So when you put all these things together, these three pictures seem to emerge, that fire is judgment, fire is purification, and fire is energizing power. So that when Jesus said, I came to cast fire upon the earth, he may have had in mind all three of these things, judgment, purification, divine power, because all of them are a picture of our salvation, aren't, isn't, aren't they? And all of Christ's ministry, while here as on earth, is moving toward this atoning death on the cross. And he longs for its completion. Jesus says, Look, I've come to cast fire, and then he adds this most interesting statement: "And would that it were already kindled." Another translation says, "And I wish that were already kindled." He comes casting fire, judgment, purification, and divine power, but but the fire's not started yet. The fire hasn't been kindled. What's he mean by that? Well, when I was a boy scout, one of my first campouts was to go about and scour about, finding all the Twigs and sticks and dried ones. Couldn't get green ones because that was used as kindling to start the fire with a flint. Remember that? A flint. And so that was my job, to get the kindling. Kindling is used to start the fire, and that's the use of the language here. But what, what is he saying? He's saying it, was, it has not yet been kindled. What's the kindling? What's, what's going to kindle the fire? What is he looking at? He's looking at his death. Because in the very next verse, it says he calls it a baptism that he must undergo. This kindling that started the fire, the gospel fire that judges, that purifies, that empowers us is the kindling of Jesus. He was to be judged by God, and he himself must be judged, and he's looking to the cross. It's an amazing statement when you see it that way. The kindling of the fire of judgment is the cross, the death, which is a fire of judgment that God puts, him, puts on him. God literally consumes Jesus in his wrath, the just for the unjust, and he's punished for our sins. And he says here, look at this, how I wish it were already kindled. He wishes it were over. Jesus could look forward to his baptism and the fire that was to be kindled in the same way that a pregnant woman might look forward to her labor. She's eager to get on with it, not because it's pleasant, not because it's enjoyable, but because of what will result. Life. Life. The fire of God's wrath is poured out on the cross on Jesus Christ. And do you think that the only time Jesus ever suffered the agonies of death was at Gethsemane? I used to think that. Do you understand that Jesus lived a perpetual Gethsemane? John MacArthur says, there was never a time in his life, in his conscious life, that he, Jesus, wasn't aware of where he was going. What he suffered in sweating great drops of blood as his capillaries disintegrated under the stress of the garden, anticipating the cross, was only the culmination of a whole life of suffering the expectation of having to be the kindling burned up by the judgment of God. Jesus didn't live carefree and happy-go-lucky. He lived knowing that it was his cross that he must bear alone. And then he uses the second word, baptism, first fire and then baptism, verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And again he says, how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now now the Greeks used the word baptism to speak of something as being dipped or immersed into something. But Jesus uses it a bit differently when he talks about his baptism of being immersed into pain and suffering and judgment and divine wrath and death he knows the baptism he must undergo and he understands that this is necessary because he must bear the judgment of the world and all its sin all at one time now there's a story of James and John the sons of Zebedee followers of Jesus you may know the story where Jesus refers to his baptism these two brothers come up alongside Jesus, and, and they, they come alongside, walking among him, or with him, and uh, they say, um, in so many words, Jesus, um, <clears throat> look, when it's all said and done, and kingdoms come, and uh, hey, we were just wondering if, if one of us could sit on your left and the other could sit on your right. I mean, this, this is when you're in glory, you know, when the throne is finally established and, you know, all the dust has settled. You know, do, you, do you think, Jesus, you could make that happen? And Jesus responds by saying, You don't know what you're asking. Now you can imagine at this point, maybe John turns to James and he says, I told you not to ask that question. Why did you ask that question, anyways? It was your idea wasn't mine. Maybe they said that's not in the Bible, but I just think that maybe he said that. But Jesus continues by asking them a question. Are you able to drink the cup? That I drink or to be baptized with a baptism which I am about to be baptized? And James looks at John, John and James, and they shake their head. Sure, no problem. They had no idea what his baptism was and what it meant to him. He carried it alone. Now it's important to understand the words fire, in the words, baptism, so that we can make sense of what he means when he talks about this division. Verse 51. Do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No. I tell you. But rather division. Sound a bit harsh, you know? That was to me. No one was ever, ever able to say to Jesus that you never expected that the price of following him would be so high. I mean, he, he didn't pull any punches. He wasn't delusional in his promises. There was no wild ideas. There was no soft sell. There's compassion. And there's tenderness that he expresses towards sinners, but there is a directness in the part of Jesus that radically alters the individual who decides to follow Jesus. Consider the blind man from birth who met, who met Jesus. The disciples asked him, Jesus, hey Jesus, who sinned? The blind man or his parents? It's gotta be one of the two. And Jesus' answer was no neither. He is blind, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then he tells him. And and, and more importantly, he tells the blind man from birth, who had never ever seen the light of day. He says to him, I am the light of the world. (laughs) And then he mixed his spittle with dirt and made mud, and he placed it on the man's eyes and then he told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam and there this man for the first time in his entire life saw the light of day talk about a defining moment you know. talk about a, a, a demarcation a dividing line that man was radically changed from that moment on or the woman at the well Remember her, where Jesus asked a woman, may I have a drink of water, please? And in the course of their conversation, Jesus turns the conversation of talking about physical water into talking about spiritual water. And he talks about it in such a way and describes it in such a way that she's sold. She says, where can I get this water that will never run dry? And so Jesus says and asks the question, well, why don't you go call your husband? I mean, of all the things Jesus could have said to her, why did he say that? Because he put his finger on the very thing that was the issue of her life. I don't have a husband. You're dead right you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you now have is a live in lover. Don't tell me the, the call to Christ upon a life is not radical, that it is not decisive or divisive following jesus is no cakewalk following jesus no walk in the park because he says if you want to be my disciple you must deny yourself and take up your cross every day and follow me why because you are you are made for god you are not made for your self-interests when we follow jesus our self-interests die and our self-interest are replaced by an enthusiastic loyalty and a love for Jesus that is life-changing and that is life-giving. Coming to Jesus is a matter of life and death, life and Jesus and death to self. Following Jesus will cost you. That's my second point. Jesus came to bring division, but following him is going to cost you. Many would say that Christianity is all about family, family life. Well, it is about family. But, the, but family life is not the gospel. There are Muslims that believe in family life and strong family, strong purity and morality and quality tying with family and all of that. Even the, the Mormon's persuasion is equally true when it comes to family. Oh, it can't get any more important than family. Families are important. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is more than family, community, and unity. And Jesus proves this when one time he's, he's teaching in a, in a large gathering inside of a, of a structure, and his family are outside, and they needed him. They needed to talk to Jesus, and they couldn't get to him because the crowd was too big. They couldn't reach him. And so they had someone go in and say, Jesus, Jesus, your mother and your brothers, they're outside. And how did he reply to the man? He said, who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And then stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, it wasn't very nice. I mean, do you think Jesus came up to make us one big happy family? Can't we all just get along? No, Jesus says, you and I will discover in following the real Jesus, that there is division. And it will cost you. Now, one day there will be peace. Isaiah 9, 6 will one day be fulfilled when Jesus is our prince of peace on a new heaven and a new earth. But for the time being, his message divides. And it's by division that we are made members of the community of Christ following christ will cost you now one thing jesus is not saying is that the primary objective is to bring division among family members but he's saying in verses 52 and 53 is that one of the effects of the gospel is just this that when the gospel revolutionizes a life it is transformational Jesus is talking here about conversion, about salvation, about regeneration. He's talking about a man or woman who comes to grips with the fact that they're a sinner. And they need to confess their sin. They need a savior and repent of that sin. That's what he's talking about. But a man or woman, they, they may assimilate religion into their lives. No big deal. They may absorb a little church into their routine, you know. Um, and all this could happen without, without ever coming to bow before Christ. And experiencing the transformation of Christ and and taking on his core values and transforming your direction and your values and your focus for the rest of your life. You see, when such a radical change takes place, there is an inevitable clash, a clanging, not only with society's values, but a division, even with those that are nearest and dearest to us. Because family members will say, why are you being such a pain in the neck? I mean, we brought you up in a Christian way, didn't we? Yes, mom, dad, you did. You, you brought us up. It was wonderful, and I'm I indebted to you for the rest of my life. But what, but what I'm saying is different. And what I'm saying is I found Jesus. And Jesus is my Savior, and he's my Lord. And I want, I'm, I'm different now. And they shake their head. Later, They walk down the stairs together. And the one turns to the other and says, what has happened to our daughter? You never should have allowed her to go on that ski trip. I told you those people were nuts. <laughs> and then there's Nancy. Nancy's family, she's, they're not thrilled with the fact that she's a new believer in Christ. And then she comes home and she tells them she's going to get baptized and she'd like them to come baptized in front of hundreds of people in this auditorium and they're all going to see. And they told Nancy, how could you do this? You are such an embarrassment to us and our family. Your grandmother's going to turn over in the grave. And then there's Esther, her father. He was even harsher when she told him she was now a Christian and wanted to follow him the rest of their life, his response was, all right then. From now on, you are no longer my daughter. That's real. That happens today. The gospel's divisive The cross is a dividing line, and all men are divided by the cross, either in eternity as well in real time. I mean, look at John 7, 43. It says, so there was a division among the people over him. John 9, two chapters later, verse 16, and there was a division among them. The next chapter, John 10, 19, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words, these words of Jesus. He divided everywhere he went. Jesus brings division. The gospel is divisive. Our Lord always draws a line in the sand, and if you decide to cross over and stand behind him and follow him, it's going to cost you. It's sort of like all of life is like a maze. All of life we're trying to find our way, aren't we? All of life people are just trying to find their way. But the Lord Jesus comes and occasionally he will intervene and he will pluck us out from the maze. And he will set us up apart and and he give us like a a, a vision from 3,000 feet to be able to look down to see what's happening there. And he gives us a new path. He gives us a new way, a new mind while our family are still in the maze. And they totally don't get it. And there's division. And they may ask, why do you treat us this way? Why do you treat us so different? And the answer is because God demands careful obedience. And he demands costly loyalty. And not everyone is prepared to pay the price. And certainly not everyone is willing to accept those that do. Jesus brings division. And following him will cost you. Now maybe this morning you've been listening, you're thinking that I'm not not sure this sermon really applies to me. I don't see any division in our family. I mean, I don't feel divided. Our family appears unified to me. Well, let me ask you this question then. What is the basis of your unity? Is it because you are one in Christ Jesus or is it because you are one in sin? Is it that the peace and the unity that comes from believing in Christ or the peace and the unity that comes because you're totally all indifferent to him? And if you're here unconverted, brought here along by the family of faith, Perhaps dragged here by your Aunt Mabel who's visiting out of town and she comes and sees you and she says, we're going to go to church that Sunday. And you go, well, we're going to go to church that Sunday. And knowing that she's a pain in the neck that you're having to sit here this morning and listen to this, I want you to know that my encouragement to you is to realize that her only wish for you is for eternal blessing and happiness. We parents, we grandparents, we long for our children. And husbands long for their wives. And a wife will long for her husband to know Jesus, to know his forgiveness. And they only wish for you to know the same love of God that they've come to learn and experience as they know him. And some of you have prayed many a year. Too many years to count. Long and hard for loved ones. Am I right? And my encouragement to you is never give up on them. But to continue to pray for them who are still holding out against Jesus today. Jesus says there's a fire that's already been kindled. There's a baptism, and I'm distressed to undergo it. And there's a division that will inevitably come. And he asks you to take him at his word this morning. And then he says to you, come, follow me, follow me. And it's through his division, it's through his separating us, it's through him calling us out from among the rest that we find entry into the family of faith and eternal life. So my question to you today is, where are you standing? Are you standing behind him? Or are you still keeping him at arm's length? Let's pray. As you bow your heads, I want to speak to those of you who may not know the Lord this morning. and I really want to encourage you to think hard about the words that you've heard this morning from Jesus. And I'd like you to think about where you're standing. And if you'd like to cross over that great divide that separates man from God, which is sin. That you could pray a prayer and tell God that you're a sinner and you want to forsake the life you've been living and you want to now live for him. That you believe that Jesus died for you and he rose from the dead from you. And you accept his forgiveness. And you want to live differently from this day forward. You say that prayer, I'd love to have you talk to me afterward or come forward and talk to those who are up here to pray with you. And for others of us who have loved ones who still have not crossed over, I'm going to give you a few minutes just to pray for them as God brings them to mind. So a few moments of prayer for your loved ones. These are harsh words, Lord. These are heavy words to take to heart. There are some here today who are still yet moved away from you. You are at arm's length. And we pray that you you will draw them to yourself as you've drawn us, having heard your words of truth, having heard the gospel that saves and Father, we long for our loved ones to know you as their Savior. And you do too, which is such an encouragement, Lord. In the scripture it says the Lord is not slow to keep his promise, as some think slowness. But he is patient toward you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. So thank you, Father, we're on your side. We want them to come to repentance and come to faith. May you please draw our loved ones. And Father, may we be patient like you and not give up, not give up hope praying for them. Thank you for my grandmother that prayed so diligently for me and for us. We all have grandparents and grandmothers. We all have parents, moms and dads, Lord, who have prayed for us. May we not give up hope.